Welcome to Tiny Little Victories. You are listening to season three, season three of Tiny Little Victories. And you know what? You guys have made that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's a nice small room tonight. Thank you. You guys have made that happen season three. So I am eternally grateful for everybody listening, everybody coming back. You guys could actually be better sharers. So today's thing to do is to maybe share a little more. I think that would be great. Sharing is caring. So enough with those dumb jokes. We are today going to talk to someone who is an entrepreneur and explorer and an environmentalist. His name is John Hazelwood. And I met him about 10 years ago in Barcelona at an event that was held there where everybody that was involved in the tech startup world would show up and drink too many drinks and go to events the next day with Coke and like Twix bars in their hands and be hung over and do the whole thing again to the next day. It was a very long time ago when we didn't know any better, but I did meet him there. And he, at that time was living in Bulgaria and John has a very interesting background and his story reads like a Graham Greene novel. So we're going to take a tiny pivot today when I talk to John about Uh, his past and his family. It's multicultural. He comes from Greece. He has lived in Bulgaria. He has traveled around the world and he has been a research analyst. He had a startup in Bulgaria and he has a new company that's environmentally forward in Austin, Texas, which we will talk about later. But I find his story and his enthusiasm for life and taking new opportunities to be really thrilling. So stick around and come back for this conversation with entrepreneur, explorer, environmentalist, John Hazelwood. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Tiny Little Victories. You are listening to season three, season three. I'm so excited about that. I have a great show for you today because I have somebody with us who I have known for over 10 years, I think, and his name is John Hazelwood. Hey, John. Hey, Jennifer. Great to be here. I'm so glad you're here because I'm going to tell a tiny little story on you and us. John and I met many years ago in Barcelona, and I've known him over the years when he was living in Bulgaria. And then he came back, he came to Texas, and we're going to get into that story, like how the heck he went back from Bulgaria to Texas. But the thing is, I didn't know John was living here. And somehow we reconnected again. And I was like, what are you doing in Texas? And he was like, what are you doing in Texas? And it turns out we both come back to the same state because there were some of our family roots that were here. But the whole time I knew you, John, in Bulgaria, I had no idea you were connected to Texas in any way. And I think that's so funny because you meet everybody abroad. We were all part of that like American mafia, you know, abroad. And then it's like, oh yeah, they're from Texas. But you don't know that till you get back here and you, you start talking to each other again. Yeah, and just down the street from you. I know, and I need to, I'm going to actually going to come down there for the Texas Tribune Festival. So we'll have to um, have a little dinner or something at Arlo. Oh, I want to, I want to eat at Arlo Gray's. I want to eat at Kristen Kirsch's restaurant. Oh, great. Great. Well, yeah. Austin uh, is one of the best places in the country, I, I think. And it's growing uh, still. It's, it's one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S. As everybody knows, 
Elon is here and I don't know if that's a good thing. Where's my boo sound? I don't know. <laughs> um, well, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's nice actually that Austin is growing because yeah. a lot of people, a lot of old Austinites complain about it, you know, how yeah. it's changed and stuff. But you know, now there's yeah. actually a downtown that you can live, you know, like yeah. downtown and there's, it's, it's, you go downtown and you see Ladybird full of kayakers and stand up paddle boards yeah. and hundreds of people. And it's like, wow, this is so cool. Yeah. I mean, I think I remember, I, I didn't grow up in Texas, but I remember like all my cousins went to UT down there. We were little, we would go. And I always thought it was a fun, quirky little town. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about, I don't, I don't, I want to go back to the beginning because your background story kind of reads like a Graham Greene novel. So I, I think it's interesting sort of where you came from and your parents. And I know that you wanted to tell a story about your father and your mother, who I find so interesting. But I also just want to put out there to you that one of the ways you describe yourself is an entrepreneur, explorer, and environmentalist. And when I was reading your bio, I started to think, listening to what your father had done, what your mother had done, all of these things really tie directly to them as well, in a way. So I think that your story stemming from who they were is quite interesting, knowing you today like I know you. And just for the record, I think Dallas is better than Austin. So we can have a fight about that later. I know there's such different cities, right? Like they're completely different feelings and cities. And it's I, I find them remarkably different. And I think I ended up in the right city. Um, but I, I like to make more of a rivalry out of it than it actually is. It's a little fun for me. (laughs) So let's, let's go back to the beginning of your story because you had, you had talked to me a little bit about your father and what he did. And then you talked a lot about your mother and where she's from, because you're, you're Greek and, and your mother was Greek, right? And born in Egypt. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it all, it all started, it all started back. (laughs) Um, my, my mother is a pure, puro Greek, uh, as they say. She's third generation Greeks uh, from Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, she speaks six, seven languages. All my family on that side speaks six, seven languages. Alexandria used to be uh, like the cosmopolitan uh, yes. city uh, of, the, of the time and before Nasser took over. And he, so my mother... Yeah, it all started. My mother went on vacation. She was 18. She went to Libya for a vacation. And uh, <laughs> my father uh, was in Libya for work. He was a geophysicist. Okay. And they met and fell in love. And yeah, so it all started so in your Libya. Mom, your, mom, your dad was an American and he was a geophysicist for a, like a gas company or I think you said Texaco. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. An oil company. Um, he, he was from Austin. He was from Leander. Okay. And, There's uh, your Austin tie. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So this Texan, this geophysicist Texan was working in Libya and met your mom. That's an amazing story. And so did they, they immediately came back to Austin or did you live in, did you live in Greece for a while? Uh, but, <laughs> Don't you uh, cry for me. Yeah, exactly. So, and then, and then he came back to Austin, uh, ran Goodwill back here in Austin. And then my other sister was born. So, uh, yeah, so we we grew up in Texas and Austin and he, uh, then we moved to, uh, Greece. Okay. So you did get to Greece. 
Yeah, in Rhodes and Athens, my, you know, my mother, my after Nasser took over, all the everybody left Alexandria, so all my family moved to uh, okay. Greece. So a couple mm-hmm. of aunts moved to Monaco. Their husbands worked for Onassis, who who uh, had an office in Monaco. And uh, we we after Greece, we moved to London. I was six, and my father went back to work in, as a geophysicist. He was working for Mandrill Industries, a subsidiary of Texaco. Okay. Uh, he was working in Timbuktu in Mali. I mean, I mean, I'm gonna stop you right there because literally, does this read like a Graham Greene novel? Like, are you sure your dad didn't work for the State Department? I make that in quotes, State Department. Yeah. No, it was Texaco for sure. Okay, it's and, a good cover. And un- unfortunately, well, he was in the Sahara the desert, him and a local driver from Mali. Uh, mm-hmm. They had a new Jeep. They didn't have a compass in it. They were following another Jeep. There were sandstorms. Uh, they oh lost the Jeep ahead of them. And they, by the book, my father wanted to go, like the book says, go to the highest dune. Yeah. And um, they had a, a plane that, that was... Uh, uh, down and it was it, it needed some parts. By the time they got the parts in, they uh, I mean they looked everywhere for him. Of course, prior to that, but then when they when they got the plane fixed, they went out and found him and the local driver. They had both perished from dehydration. Oh, John, that's a terrible story. I'm so sorry. How old were you when that happened? I was six. You were six. I mean, we were living in London at the time, so my mother. Kind of didn't tell me and my younger sister uh, exactly what had happened, and um, she came back to Austin for the funeral uh, with my older brother and sister. Then she came back to London and she told us. And uh, so, I mean, yeah, I, I remember back then, of course, those memories. Mm. Um, my grandfather, you know, he's like, my mother wasn't sure whether to move to Athens, move to mm. Monaco. Or moved yeah. to Austin, and that's um, a, so three different places, completely different places: Austin, Monaco, or back to Athens. Athens, yeah, yeah, and and well, that's because we had relatives; those were the three places, yeah. of course. And yeah, so that makes sense. My uh, my grandfather said, "Take your children to America." <laughs> and, uh, in that, Is this also um, like a big fat Greek wedding thing? I feel like there's a big fat Greek wedding thing about to happen here. Yeah, yeah. It it we moved back to Austin, and exactly, uh, my mother opened a couple restaurants. She had okay the second restaurant on Sixth Street, which okay. now is you know uh, called La Casba. There was jazz on the weekdays and belly dancing on the weekends. I love and, this. Um, I love this about you. Yeah, and then and then she um, after that we moved to Beeville, Texas, for a couple of years, and then back to Austin. She opened up a travel agency. And you have a tra- you had a travel organization with your startup. And that's one of the things when I began to think about your story, I was like, did your mother, did your mother opening up that travel agency influence you to start that very successful business that you had in Bulgaria? Travel store maker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that whole thing evolved, of course, and, and uh, you know, we were, uh, it, it uh, well, to my big fat Greek wedding, just like on there, the, all the kids were working in the restaurants and, and then in the travel agency, and, and 
I went from working in my mother's travel agency to opening up a travel agency. Yeah. And, uh, and is that I, what inspired uh, you to open, to create travel store maker? Yeah. Well, it, it, uh, I ended up opening up one on Rio Grande. We were selling consolidator tickets. That's we a long like time really ago cheap before. Tickets to yeah. Europe. And, and, uh, so we had these ads running these small block ads with, you know, 200, uh, destinations and the phones would ring off the wall and we would, you know, we grew that agency and then I opened up another one and, um, me and my brother, um, got into the sports business and, and my brother met a guy, an Italian president of one of the Italian female basketball teams in Italy, in Milan, and he speaks seven languages. Uh, so what are all that, these languages people are speaking? That's, that's like a, yeah, that's like the standard yeah, default number, seven linguists. languages. <laughs> yeah. And, okay, uh, so but, but, but the question is, did, so you, you were in the travel, the travel business when it was nowhere near what it is today, where there wasn't the internet really, there was just phones. And so you were sort of at the, be I feel like your history is that you're sort of at the beginning dabbling in the things that you'd end up doing as an entrepreneur later, right? Because you, you did start Travel Store Maker. You were also a research analyst. And, you know, I think in what you've created now with your startup, you've, you've done something else in terms of being an explorer in a way because um, Natura Reserve, your water-based glamping and the floating eco-resorts, to me, is about that explorer in you. You know, I mean, these, you, clearly, you clearly love to explore. And that's one of the things I really admired about you is your um, exploration mode. And in that exploration mode, you actually rode your bike, right? From Sofia to London. Is that, is that right? In the bio, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh my gosh, what was that in, like? In 2012, uh, me and 11 Bulgarians, uh, there was a, <laughs> a, a guy that got hit by a car riding his bicycle and it was his dream and he, he almost died. His, his daughter lived in London, Katya. And uh, that was the summer of 2011. Uh, a year later, you know, uh, she was like, I'm so thankful that my father's alive. She wanted to make his dream come true. It was his dream to ride his bicycle to London. And so she organized a trip from Sofia to London. And uh, when we started out from Sofia, there was like 100 people starting to ride and it dwindled down. And when, by the time we left Bulgaria, we did a complete circle around Bulgaria, up the Danube into Serbia. And uh, so most of the people had left. It ended up being 11 uh, of us. We rode our bicycles 55 days over 3000 kilometers from Sofia to London uh, in over 13 countries. It was just an amazing trip. We arrived uh, two days before the 2012 Olympics. Uh, wow! And, what a arrival! Uh, yeah, so that was that was the kind of putting it together with the 2012 Olympics, and she had a you know a a, 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 a campaign a PR campaign about safety, bicycle safety, of course, and uh, through that whole 55 days. But it was an amazing trip. It's something that. I'm so yeah, glad it sounds like I a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do something like that. And also, sort of, at, again, I've been coming back to this a lot, and a lot of people I've been talking to, but I, at the be very beginning of the connectivity 
in the world. Like 2012, we weren't exactly like as mobile as we were with mobile devices, was not really any social media. So you were really out there on your own making these trips, you know, it was really before all the phones became so predominant. And I always look back at any sort of movement or um, any sort of um, mobilization of people prior to that. And I think, see, we can live without all this. We can live without social media. We've done it before. We've created all these great experiences and we didn't have all this stuff. Well, um, to make a short pivot. Actually, during that trip, I had, you know, because I still had to run a company. I I had my company and we had like, over, you know, we had almost 130 people. And so I couldn't take off 55 days. Uh, I had a couple people who were filming. One guy was a filmmaker and uh, another guy that was helping me. Yeah, but they weren't filming on their phones. No, no, they had their yeah. cameras and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, but cameras, and so, but we still had cameras, yes. Yeah, so I was able to work along the way those 55 yeah. days. So I was, we were, we were cycling about five hours a day on average um, but that's so, kind of unheard of at the time to be able to work along the way. Like you must, what kind of connection were you getting? Because phones were still pretty rough in 2012. Yeah. Yeah. We were finding hot spots along the way. Oh, okay. we were, yeah. Then you would work. Uh, yeah. That's very still- entrepreneur of you to be working all the time on a 55 day bike, bike, uh, trek. How, what I really want to know is how did you get to Bulgaria? Like where, what was that jumping off point for you and why Bulgaria? Well, so we had the travel agency and then we got into the sports business. Mm-hmm. Uh, we became the second largest agency for female basketball players. We had girls playing in about 25 countries um, and they were all Americans. There wasn't a WNBA at the time. This was in the early 90s. Um, and through that, uh, my brother and I, uh, purchased a local soccer team, a semi-pro soccer team here in Austin called the Austin Socadillos, like soccer armadillos, Socadillos. Yeah, um, I get it. I pulled yeah. that, put that together. And you know yeah. what's so interesting about soccer now, John, is that now you've seen soccer here, especially in North Texas, with all the teams and the acquisitions that they've made with people. It's really like really becoming a, a, a big, quite rave up here with soccer and the possibility of these semifinals with FIFA or FIFA. Never quite sure how to say that. FIFA. Yeah. And well, FIFA. 2026, they're going to have the, yeah. the world cup here in the States. It's going to be another exactly. World cup. Exactly. Well, and uh, Dan Hunt is trying to get some of that here in Dallas. And um, as you know, Dan Hunt is uh, the son of Lamar Hunt, who uh, the oil baron who also owned the uh, Kansas city chiefs. Well, that's well so so that's interesting because dallas of course was where bulgaria played and that's oh really yeah and and so so backtracking a little bit we went from owning that semi-pro soccer team uh the Socadillos, and i ran that for a couple seasons and then um because we were in the soccer business of course and we were also doing some things with players and stuff and uh, I spearheaded an effort to bring a World Cup team to Austin because Dallas was one of the venues where games were played. This was 1994. Yeah, uh, this is what I'm saying. Like with all the soccer rage right now, I mean, if I Google Austin Socadillos, it's like really, it looks really dated. Like it has a lot of legacy. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's soccer. Now we have an MLS team here, right? So, oh my Socadillos See, it's crazy. Is kind of, so soccer's taking over. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but 
Yeah, so we, we went, um, you know, we, I ended up spearheading an effort and I went to New York where there was FIFA meetings and then, and then to Las Vegas uh, for the World Cup draw. And uh, I looked at all the teams that were going to uh, play in Dallas. I contacted all of them and I ended up recruiting the Bulgarian World Cup team. Uh, I actually represented them for the 10 days they came to Austin. Um, they flew into Houston. They came to Austin 10 days. They had a couple exhibition games. Very cool. Uh, tra training. Then they went to Dallas. And I don't know if you remember, but they came in fourth place in the world. Oh, no, I would never remember that. If they, you weren't a European, t if you weren't like played in Europe during FIFA, and you weren't my French boyfriend, I never would have known. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Christo Stoichkov, who was the golden sh shoe player, he won the Golden Shoe Award, the top European player for multiple years. He played in Barcelona. And uh, so he was the, you know, their, their leading scorer and they beat Germany and Mexico. And okay. uh, yeah, they, made, they made it to the semifinals of the World Cup. Nobody, you know, believed that this small country with yeah. 8 million people would be able to make it to the semifinal. So, yeah. Uh, well, how did you get to Bulgaria? Because, I mean, it seems like you're very tight with Bulgaria and this type of, you know, being instrumental in bringing the team here and all the things you've done with soccer and the Bulgarian team. How did you end up in Bulgaria? Yeah. So, so after the World Cup, uh, I, I, uh, I took a team to a Bulgarian team. It was the top Bulgarian team to Japan for an exhibition game. But you were living in Texas when you were working with the Bulgaria team? Yeah, yeah, I was living okay. in Texas. Okay. And uh, I was- And what was the connection? Of... Like, why the Bul why Bulgaria? You're, you feel like you're like dodging the question. Why Bulgaria? How did you get so involved when you didn't live there? Well, again, there was a number of teams that were playing in Dallas and I contacted all of them. So Bulgaria mm -hmm. was the one that decided that they would want to have their training camp in Austin. At the time, they were planning on having okay. their training camp up in the Northeast where the mm -hmm. weather's totally different and it didn't yeah. make any sense. So they liked the idea. They came to Austin. I represented them. I'm, okay. I'm, so I'm, the Bulgarian soccer team got you to Bulgaria. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. That was, that, that's tough. You're making it hard as an interviewer. Yeah. Okay. That's crazy. I thought you had some like other interest for being in Bulgaria. I didn't realize that you were, it was your, it was your sports representation that ended up tying you there. That's cool. Yeah. 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 So, and then you so, decided to move there. You decided to move there. I think in, I can't remember, I can't keep up with your history, but what, I guess, I guess, I guess, um, for your journey in time, you stayed there for quite a long time for about 15 years. And then you decided to come back to Texas. Why? What was the pivot for you to get back to Texas? Yeah, well, so, I mean, the reason why I ended up going to Bulgaria was because I still, while I was doing the sports business, I still had the travel agency. And I had a guy that was head of VRML Technologies at IBM, a physics PhD. He was my co-founder. We co-founded what ended up being Travel Stormaker, uh, one of... Well, our investor was a gentleman by the name of Admiral Bobby Inman, who used to be ran the CIA, National Security Advisor for Ronald Reagan, and um, he was uh, Director of in, in, uh, Defense Intelligence and a number of things. But he uh, he was one of the early investors, one of the first investors actually in Dell, Michael Dell and Oracle back in the mid '80s, and 
So he was an angel investor. Uh, he invested uh, in in the company. He liked the idea that uh, my co-founder Linus Vebsis. Uh, he uh, worked nights and weekends, and we launched the first internet booking engine. You could make an airline reservation on the internet back in 1994. And not only was it an airline ticket, but it was all, it was a consolidator ticket to boot, which was we were pulling data from this database, and then it would go to to uh, the GDS, which is like WorldSpan or Sabre, to look for the class of service and make the booking. And so we launched that and uh, then went out to try and fundraise. Uh, Admiral Emin decided to invest. Uh, and that led me, you know, it's like, well, uh, the math and science level was really, you know, uh, very high and the costs were very low. Uh, we ended up going to Sofia uh, once we got funded a month later uh, and we were, you know, the average salary at the time of everybody in the country was $150 a month. Even the people that were, you know, physics PhDs. So we were tripling their salaries at $500 a month. We brought uh, three guys back to Austin. We hired, we made offers to about 10, three of them accepted. The other ones didn't want to quit their jobs, you know, and, and some and go to the States for, you know, who knows if they were, what was going to happen with the company. They were, didn't want to take the risk. So three guys came, went back to Bulgaria a few months later, and they were working out of the Bulgarian Academy of Science where our director of technology, um, he was a physics PhD. He was working out of the Bulgarian Academy of Sciences. And uh, so it was these three guys uh, back in Bulgaria they had one window with a curtain down and they were chain smokers sitting there writing code in this small room at the Bulgarian Academy of Science, just like you would think about Eastern Europe and, you know, some, some guys in, and uh, Nikolai had this long beard and kind of, um, so anyway, that's how it all started. We, uh, we did uh, travel for a period of time. Admiral Inman was on the board of five Fortune 100 companies at the same time. Uh, and, uh, and he, he was like, John, I don't know much about travel, uh, threw out a couple ideas. Uh, one of them was Y2K and, uh, and in his world at, he was SBC communications and, and, uh, Xerox and a number of these, these big companies, he was on their boards and he saw the Y2K, uh, coming. And, and, uh, so we kept a team of 15 working on the technology uh, we started a new company that was doing Y2K services, and we got into that, got into embedded systems, because we kind of got in a little late. We did it for a little bit over a year, uh, 90, uh, beginning of 99. Uh, we saw that, you know, it wasn't going to be like everybody thought, where uh, we had partnered with the EDS, and EDS's plan was after the year 2000, they were going to buy all these computers that went down for pennies on the dollar and refurbish them with their with their coders and then sell, sell them back on the market. But, you know, no, nothing ever happened uh, like what what everybody thought that the world was going to crash at Y2K. So yeah. anyway, we got out in 1999, got back into travel. Uh, we sold the first company to a company called IFAO. Um, they uh but the people, we had about 100 people. Uh, ba basically, it was an aqua hire. I got the code back, and uh, then I, I took that code and uh, that software, and I went out and 
got funded from Worldspan, which is a competitor Sabre, uh, and uh, went back to Bulgaria. That was in 2000, in 2001. Uh, and, uh, and so that's where the new company, Travel Store Maker, uh, started. And uh, that went on for about 15 years. Yeah. Uh, so I wow. was, I was that's in Bulgaria. Quite a, that's quite a, quite a detailed journey. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, was... Well, I I think that's great. I mean, I think I knew you when you were creating Travel Store Maker, and I think that was sort of at the forefront of what they were doing at the time. You know, I mean, uh, there weren't a lot of people working in multiple countries at the same time that were startups. So I think you were definitely head of the the pack on that. And so one thing I wanted to get in before we close out the podcast is a little bit about what you've done. Now you're still continuing to work with. Um, the Admiral, I love how you just call him like Admiral Inman, but in a really short, briefly, talk to me a little bit about uh, Natura Reserve and what you've created, what you're creating in Austin. And he's, and he's still a part of that project, but what is it that you hope that will happen uh, with Natura Reserve? And just so everybody knows, uh, I'll tell you quickly that I call this sustainable water clamping because it's a very like sustainable boat that kind of looks like a truncated airstream to me and you have it on Lake Travis, but it's, it's sort of getting people outdoors and it is sustainable. And, um, this is your next project. And I'd love to hear a little bit, uh, before we go about what's happening with that and what you hope it will do, what behavior it will change with people. Yeah. So we, uh, I bought a houseboat and I was living on the houseboat and we started renting it and then did a proof of concept for a little over two years uh, having this houseboat out on the lake, on Lake Travis. Uh, and it's kind of evolved to what we're, what Natura Reserve now we're launching is water-based glamping and floating eco-resorts. I love where, that, water-based glamping and eco-resort. But it's, it's, it looks so, it sounds so interesting. So what, what break it down for people really, like quickly, what, what is it that they would be able to do on this eco-resort? Well, we're taking, two, we're taking two booming sectors. We're taking glamping, which is booming, and we're taking boat rentals, which is booming, and we're combining that yeah. into a unique resort uh, and event center for overnight stays and daytime events. Love that. So Love that. We're, yeah, so we're, we're, um, we're targeting, right now we're targeting universities. We're looking, uh, we're working on a couple projects with Texas A&M. We're looking at... Uh, Texas A&M launch. in Austin, how's that working out for you? Yeah, well, I met with uh, <laughs> Chancellor John Sharp and uh, that he liked the idea. They have a new hospitality, hotel management and tourism program that they launched mm-hmm. this year. And uh, a new uh, the new Alpen Center that uh, Beaver Alpen from Bucky's, uh, don- he donated 50 million last year and the new hospitality program is going to be housed out of there. So, right, and text for Texas A&M? Yeah, yeah, up in, oh, up okay. in Brian. Yeah. Oh. So, so, so um, we're, you know, looking at, at that project up doing something in Brian, and we're looking at one in Corpus and potentially okay. one in Galveston at Texas A&M. But they have 152,000 students in, you know, their system. So yeah. uh, Texas A&M Corpus Christi isn't even, they're not even Aggies, they're, they're yeah, Islanders. But I'm, but, I'm, but I'm trying to figure out what, what's the connection with universities? Why, what, what's going to happen? Are they, are you teaching something there or? Well, we're just partnering with them because um, what we're trying to do is leverage uh, their, 
what we can do with them and their students. Oh, um, okay. And, you know, what we can provide, like uh, in Corpus Christi, they, we don't even probably need to do any advertising. I mean, they can, they own the land. Um, oh, wait, I see what you're, you mean, you're talking about putting these eco resorts in land around these places. Yes, yes, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. That, that was missing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because I see from the website that you have the, like, the Airstream houseboat yachts in the water with decks connected to a really beautiful piece of land where there's, like, eco pods that you can glamp in. Is that is that about right? Yeah, yeah. So okay. initially, we're okay. going to phase this in. So initially, it's, it's land-based glamping. Got it. And then, and then we phase in these, what we call houseboat yachts. Yeah, uh, I like the I like the way those look. Yeah, so it's it's kind of evolved, and now our initial launch is going to be uh, using uh, boats on trailers that we're going to use as glamping for overnight stays, and these hmm. boats are going to be historic, classic, historic boats. These beautiful wooden boats uh, we're going to use oh, as our that. structures, and yeah. uh, so. It's uh, a lot of these boats, there's no people to work on them anymore. And yeah. they're, they're going to the, they're, they're basically being crushed. And, uh, and you know, so we're, we want to revive them. And we think, you know, we did some A-B testing with some, some folks. And uh, the feedback that we got is like people would really, really like those uh, historic classic boats to overnight and on land. Uh, so we have boats on land and then we're looking at using airstreams and putting them actually on on um uh on, on the water mm. so you have these uh, floating airstreams yeah floating airstreams right so that's cool you kind of have boats on land and airstreams on water so it's kind of the I, love that. I love that boats on land airstreams on water you got to get matthew mcconaughey involved because he loves airstreams uh-huh well what we want and he's to in austin yeah, yeah. Well, you need to put me in contact with him. You know, I, I, I interviewed him one time. He's amazing. So I don't think I still have that publicist connection, but I think he'd be a great person for this. He loves he loves stuff like that. Yeah. Well, think about a living, a, a, a living floating boat museum. You know, I, like, you I love it. You can go and stay at and you can check out these beautiful old classic boats. Yeah. So that's, I think you see a lot of those up on the East coast, like on Lake Tahoe and my grandfather handmade boats when I was growing up, wooden boats, you know, and they were so beautiful. My mother used to water ski behind them. They were just these beautiful classic boats. You know, you see a lot of those in the Mediterranean, those beautiful wooden boats. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, there's, there's, you know, they, Lake Travis Mediterranean. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, like I said, there are, there, there are people, there's not people around to work on them anymore. They're retiring and it's, mm-hmm. and they, uh, I love the leave. preservation. I love the preservation effect that you're trying to go for here. I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm an environmentalist. So all, our whole yeah. thing is about conservation and preservation and bringing these, you know, historic boats back to life. I love uh, it. So we're, uh, we're excited. We think it's a good model. We're looking for. I think partners. I do too, and I think all of these things fit who you are: entrepreneur, explorer, and environmentalist. And so, I want you to keep me up to date on when we can go look at these boats because I I think that you know preserving the past is really important. Conserving what we've created is is so great, and I'm so happy that you're out there doing that. So, 
Thank you so much, John, for taking this time to come and share this, this, this story of your life and how you got to where you are. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, it's, uh, it's I, I love, you know, talking about what I'm doing in this because it is exciting. And uh, if uh, anybody's interested, we're, we're looking to kind of, you know, looking for, for uh, buys of water where yeah. we can launch okay. these on. So okay. thank you so much. Yeah, what we'll do is we'll put some, uh, I'll put some things in the notes where they can get in touch with you. You can go and look at Natura Reserve. It's www.nataureserve.com. And uh, bodies of water. I, I've never had anybody ask for bodies of water, John. I absolutely love that. So I'll put all this in the notes. And if anybody's listening and they have some bodies of water that can take these uh, floating historic boats, let's reach out to John and see if he can make that happen. Waterfront property. Love it. I love it. Thank you, Jennifer.